Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. The question of how COVID-19 spread to humans has been circulating widely this week. One theory making the rounds is that the deadly virus originated and escaped from a lab in China. It gained steam when U.S. President Donald Trump validated the idea, saying China could face consequences if it is knowingly responsible. The Wuhan Institute of Virology has dismissed rumors that it came from the lab in the first place, while the World Health Organization has said all available evidence suggests the virus originated in an animal and not a lab. To complicate things even more, China is now claiming the virus came from a lab in, you guessed it, the U.S. So where did the deadly virus begin and how did that rumor start? Today on our myth-busting episode of The Dose, we're tackling the question, is there any truth to rumors that the coronavirus came from a lab in China? Joining me to answer this question is Professor Jason Kinderchuk. He's an assistant professor and Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Hi, Professor Kinderchuk. Welcome to The Dose. Thanks so much for having me on, Dr. Goldman. Please call me Brian. I I will. (laughs) We're going to get to the science of where the virus originated, but first I have to ask, is there any truth to this idea that COVID-19 escaped from a lab in China? Oh, so this is such a great question, right? And, and obviously, uh, it's been a hot button issue for, for you know, a week or a couple of weeks now. Um, at the end of the day, I look at two things. Uh, is it possible or is it probable? Um, is it possible? There's a non-zero chance. But there's, you know, I also have said to people this week, there's a non-zero chance that my dog could turn into the thing while I'm sleeping tonight. So, I, you know, I have I accept the fact that there could be, but is it probable? No. Is there any evidence at all to support this theory that COVID-19 came from a lab in, in Wuhan? Are there any historical examples? Well, you know, and, and again, that's where, you know, I've, I've had to kind of take a step back and say, you know, there is evidence from uh, 1977 uh, that H1N1 influenza uh, potentially was leaked from, from a lab, uh, likely in either China or Russia, although that has, uh, I think, has not yet been confirmed. We also saw in uh, the early 2000s during the original SARS epidemic uh, that there were a couple of, uh, you know, accidental exposures in laboratories that resulted in, in people getting infected in Beijing. Now, we also have to take, you know, I guess maybe a moment of pause and say that both of those cases were, were published and they were identified and, and the, uh, the patients were, were ultimately hospitalized. You know, we, we know that these events can happen. Now, do they happen at the frequency that I think maybe they are, are sometimes mentioned at being at? And I think the answer is no. I want to get back to, to something I said off the top. I mentioned that, that U.S. President Trump has weighed in on this. What's your sense of why this theory has taken hold? Because he said it, but a lot of people, particularly in the United States, believe it. In many ways, maybe it's, a, it's an easy way to uh, take focus off of um, some of the situation that, that we've seen in the U.S., in particular with the lack of testing 
um, or concerns regarding testing, the concerns regarding you know the the federal government response um, and the response of the White House. And I think that you know we we've seen China become an easy uh, an easy scapegoat uh, in that sense. So I think you know that is part of the way to kind of get maybe the focus shifted a little bit. And again, it it's difficult to disprove, right? I mean, how you know how do we without actually getting access to a high containment laboratory in a different nation? How do we go in and completely disprove unequivocally that this was not an accidental uh, exposure from somebody in a lab? Um, I think we can disprove relatively straight from relatively straightforward fashion that this was not an engineered virus. I think that bioinformaticists have done an excellent job of, of doing that over the past few months that we've had sequence information. But it's a little bit harder to say somebody maybe got exposed and walked out of the lab sick and passed it on. So let's uh, you and I try to uncover some of the uh, actual factors that that scientists believe are behind the COVID-19 pandemic. How did scientists begin the work of understanding where the COVID-19 virus originated? Yeah, so, it, you know, the one thing I have to say is, uh, you know, modern technology is amazing. You know, December 31st was the, the first instance that we, uh, you know, heard reports of this atypical pneumonia cluster from Wuhan, China. Um, within the span of about a week and a half, we had uh, sequence information for virus that have been isolated uh, from those from those patients, uh, which is remarkable. You know, in the past, that kind of stuff took months, and and you know we had it in a week and a half, and we're able to then start to look through at the sequence information itself to give us an idea from the genomic level what this virus looked like. And people far smarter than me uh, in bioinformatics can basically take all of this uh, genome sequence information and essentially look at um, you know the similarity of the genome for this virus as compared to other viruses. And what they were able to show very quickly was that this virus uh, shared similarity with uh, the original SARS coronavirus, but it also shared a really high similarity, about 96% similarity with, uh, with a bat coronavirus. And when you see that type of similarity, now it starts to really you know, kind of turn the tide a little bit in terms of guiding you in the direction of where this virus likely came from. And so for for those of us who don't spend a lot of time in this kind of a deep sequencing lab, uh, first of all, um, are they examining the virus in a lab? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So the, the great thing that they're doing and, and, and we're able to do is basically take uh, clinical samples. So we can take um, you know, a, a sputum sample or a, a swab sample. And if there's virus there, we can actually extract uh, or basically, um, you know, kind of isolate the nucleic acid or the genome um, from from whatever sample is uh, is there. So if there's virus there, we can essentially pull its genome out. And then what we can do is basically uh, through uh, sequencing um, instrumentation, we can basically put in that genome and basically have our instrumentation go through and read the exact sequence of the genome. So if we think about this, it's kind of like taking you know a page from a book and essentially putting it into a machine and the, basically the machine pulling out each individual letter in order from that page. And that's really what, what it does. And, and we know obviously in the past doing these kinds of experiments uh, would, would take months uh, of time. Um, now the, the fact is that we can use uh, you know, high-speed um, uh, bioinformatics programs and software to go through and actually do a lot of this work for us not only sequence it, but also identify any potential partners or, or similar partners 
uh, from basically the kind of the, the vast uh, repositories of, uh, of genomes that, that are available to the public and to researchers. So you've said that uh, this deep sequencing has revealed that COVID-19 is 90, shares 96% of its RNA with a bat coronavirus. How did the virus jump from bats to humans? Oh, this is a great question. And one that we, uh, I think, as a whole are still trying to answer. So, you know, if we go into to bats and we look at um, you know, the, the number of viruses that, that can be found in bats, it's an unbelievable quantity. I mean, there, there are, we've discovered an unbelievable quantity of viruses so far, but there are still an unbelievable number that, that remain to be found. What we think likely happens over time is that the virus essentially, uh, you know, is, is slowly changing. Um, so, you know, as it basically makes more copies of itself, it will start to uh, make some random mutations within its own genome. Viruses, uh, unfortunately, they, they make copies of themselves very easily and very quickly, but they also have, uh, you know, kind of this error-prone uh, nature to them. So they, they do make errors. So over time, what, what can happen is you can actually have uh, a virus that is slowly making, um, you know, some, some mutations randomly. And if those mutations happen to allow that virus to, you know, latch on to its particular uh, receptor within another animal, that allows the virus to spill over. So when we look at this in nature, there are any number of viruses that are circulating uh, in bats or through other animals, and that come into contact with potential uh, new animals that, that could become infected, but because they don't have the right machinery at that point in time, they don't. This isn't so much that this is, you know, an event that only occurs once in a while. These types of events are constantly occurring. It's just that there is that, you know, that one time that the virus uh, or this particular virus happens to have the right configuration and is actually able to create an infection. So do you think that that COVID-19 came directly from bats to humans, or is it more likely that it uh, mutated in another species, say a mammal, another mammal, and then jumped to humans? Well, I think the likelihood is not so much that it mutated in another animal uh, as the, you know, all these transitions in its, in its sequence happened uh, likely in the bat. And then it was able to get into another animal uh, that had essentially a close enough, uh, you know, configuration uh, in its cellular machinery to what humans did, that when humans then came into contact with that animal, that basically the virus was, uh, was able to very easily, uh, or much, in a much easier fashion, transmit um, to humans. Um, I would say that there probably is uh, another intermediate host, um, so another, another animal that is um, positioned somewhere between bats and humans for this virus, um, but we're not quite there yet. And I think you know, we're, we're getting some indications. Um, we have some indications from, from SARS-CoV-2. Uh, we, we've obviously heard a little bit about the Panklin story, but we also now know that um, that looks like domesticated cats as well as, um, you know, as, as felines uh, in, in general may actually be able to, uh, to be infected. So is there a potential role in transmission? We don't quite know, but it at least suggests that you know, it, it is going to be more complicated than just directly from, from bats to humans. So there's a lot of hypothesizing in there. What's the actual evidence for, for your line of thinking that this came from bats to probably some intermediate animal and then to humans? 
Yeah, I think our best evidence goes back right now. So the the initial sequencing information, you know, when we look across that and, and gain when uh, when people that are far smarter than me in, in bioinformatics have have looked at the sequencing, I think we we have a highly highly probable estimate that this that this virus came over from uh, from bats. I don't think that there's a, a good argument that can be made right now against the theory that that this virus originated in bats. When it comes to uh, potential intermediate animals, now it gets a little bit messier because we haven't identified that intermediate animal yet that has something like, say, antibodies uh, directed towards uh, SARS coronavirus 2, which would tell us at least that those animals have been exposed. And I think part of that is really because, you know, we're four months into the pandemic. I think it's going to take some time to actually, you know, first of all, get people uh, into the, the region around Wuhan uh, to start going and doing surveillance of animals and, and doing it fairly broadly. You know, this, this took months uh, of time in the past with, with SARS coronavirus. Um, it's going to take probably quite a bit of time. We have some leads, but we don't have, you know, kind of that unequivocal piece of evidence yet to say, okay, this is the animal that we think the virus is transmitting through uh, to get to humans from bats. Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, a couple months back, uh, I, I found myself watching an odd video, a YouTube video of, of a bat, in a, uh, a live bat in a soup. Yes. <laughs> Did you see that one too? Uh, I, so I will give you some context for this. I was actually in, uh, in Nairobi running an emerging virus uh, science outreach program when I saw it. So I had a lot of questions about it uh, the, the day after it was posted by, by all my uh, Kenyan students. And people want to know, you know, would you get infected with, with uh, coronavirus by eating an infected bat? The, the odds are um, there are very few bats that will be carrying uh, the virus at that particular moment in time. And then when we look at things like consumption, we're still, I think, at an infancy in understanding, um, you know, where these viruses are, uh, are carried within the bats. So are they carried within particular tissues? Is it within their blood? Is it all the time? Is it only part of the time? Um, we don't quite know yet, and, and it's a, it's an extremely complex question. So when I look at things like the the consumption of bats, maybe it can play a role, but the likelihood is uh, again we don't think that food consumption or consumption of uh, of meat that is carrying the virus is the likely source um, for for infection. We still think that it, it likely is from uh, contact with droplets. So, you know, with somebody close to, um, you know, to bat urine or bat feces and, you know, perhaps, you know, touch that and then touch their eye or touch their mouth. That, that to me is a more likely or probable uh, way that, that somebody got infected. So it sounds like you're saying that banning the sale of wild animals would not be a potential solution to, oh, to, to future problems. Well, so such a great question, right? And uh, I, I will lean back on my experience and, and my continued experience in West Africa. So we get into a position of, of saying, if we ban all wild animal sale and consumption, do we drive a lot of these markets underground, which makes them a lot harder 
to try and uh, and navigate and have oversight on, um, which which unfortunately is what's happened a little bit with uh, wild game, in particular with uh, with non-human primate meat in certain regions in Africa. So it's become a lot harder to try and, and figure out uh, who is selling uh, meat, uh, potentially contaminated meat, where. But I also am uh, I, I'm an animal advocate, so I don't like the idea of of these animal markets, and we know that um, that they can lead to transmission events. So can we ban um, the sale of uh, and and uh, you know propagation of wild animal markets, but do it in a way that we don't create essentially an underground market that can't be monitored? The sense I got from you earlier in the conversation when I mentioned President Trump is that besides obscuring the truth, the downside to blaming China or the United States, for that matter, for unleashing COVID-19 is that it obscures the real reasons uh, why this pandemic has developed. And, you know, from time to time during the pandemic, concerns have been raised that COVID-19 is directly related to climate change. How might climate change play a role in emerging coronaviruses and other infections for that matter? You know, one of the things that, that has gone on in the last while is people have actually been looking into the effects of uh, climate change and environmental factors on spillover events of emerging viruses. What people have been able to show is that there is, you know, some correlation between things like deforestation uh, with increased spillover events. And a lot of that is because ultimately with, uh, with urbanization, um, especially with random urbanization like like we're seeing within um, you know regions uh, within definitely West Africa and Central Africa and, and likely through uh, regions of China as well, is we are putting people into uh, direct contact with with animals in in a manner that wouldn't have happened in the past. And in particular, with animals uh, that that we know can harbor viruses, you know, in particular with bats, you know, through things like climate change, that climate change also has the potential to shift things like migratory patterns when we start to see migration of these bats to new regions uh, where, you know, where the viruses uh, previously weren't seen. What's the danger of a rumor like the one we've been talking about, namely that, that COVID-19 came from a lab? Uh, is it harmless or is there, are there consequences for scientists studying this in the general public? Unfortunately, there, there are massive consequences. Like we're trying to, uh, you know, kind of counter these, uh, you know, the, these rumors as quickly as possible. But the danger is, is that once you put out that kernel of uh, misinformation, um, it, it spreads like wildfire. And that's the, the issue that we're in, is that we get back to a position of now having to uh, you know, essentially disprove, uh, you know, basically misinformation, which is not where we should be focusing our time and efforts right now. Uh, you know, really, as researchers, we need to be focused on how to combat this virus, not how to combat uh, misinformation and how we do a better job of, of communicating factual science in a way that's actually digestible for, for the general public. You know, there's a quote from an article about the coronavirus published in the New England Journal of Medicine, an aptly named article, Escaping Pandora's Box. And I want to read the quote. We must realize uh, that in our crowded world of 7.8 billion people, a combination of altered human behaviors, environmental changes, and inadequate public health mechanisms now easily turn obscure animal viruses into existential human threats. COVID-19 is plenty frightening enough, even though it didn't come from a lab. You know, to me, that, that quote completely, completely symbolizes the, um, you know, the, the things that keep me up at night, but also the, the things that, that keep me going during the daytime. At the end of all of this, uh, sit back and try and figure out 
what were the things that um, that helped precipitate COVID-19 to become essentially the global pandemic that it is outside of just the virus itself? And how do we uh, somehow try to learn from, uh, you know, from, um, from those insights to better prepare ourselves for the future? Professor Kinderchuk, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Brian, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Professor Jason Kinderchuk is an assistant professor and Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Here's your dose of smart advice on the origins of COVID-19. There are lots of theories on where the virus originated, but scientists and the World Health Organization have been crystal clear in stating that COVID-19 did not come from a lab in Wuhan, China, With so much speculation, it's a good time to remember that while so much is unknown about COVID-19, there is scientific evidence to help us understand its origins. Researchers like Jason Kinderchuk say the virus likely emerged from bats, infecting animals sold in live animal markets before jumping to humans, and has become quite good at human-to-human transmission, unfortunately. Scientists don't know exactly how that happened, but they think human behavior, climate change, and lax public health monitoring are contributing factors. We need a lot more scientific evidence to know how to prevent an outbreak like this from happening in the future. In the meantime, if you want to tell the difference between evidence-backed information and theories, look for reputable sources. At The Dose, we'll continue to bring you the best information we can on COVID-19. If you have questions about the coronavirus, let us know what they are, and we'll do our best to get you some answers. Email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can tweet me at NightShiftMD or the other show I host at CBC Whitecoat. Remember to use the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. This edition of The Dose was produced by Ariane Robinson, Donna Dingwall, and me with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Austin Pomeroy for technical support. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice... See your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.